may, may lead in another direction occasionally, and uh, I may deviate off of this from time to time. But this is, this is the plan going forward from some time. So I hope that you uh, get yourself familiar with Daniel. I know a lot of you said you're already reading ahead and have read through it, and that's wonderful. And um, I also hope that, uh, you know, a lot of times we get so caught up in one, one thing. I mean, Daniel is a prophetic book, and man, we're going to talk a lot about that stuff. But there's a lot of other good stuff in there too. And I think you'll be helped a lot by what we read and, and what we see in the coming weeks. So you guys stood up so much. Poor Mike, he was sweating up here. I don't think he, I don't think he can stand anymore. So I'm just going to let you sit down, okay, unless you want to get up. Like I said, I'm okay with you running around. We're, we're Baptist on the sign, but we don't have to be Baptist in here. If you want to run around a little bit, that's fine. So Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And I'm not going to read that whole text right now because I'm just going to get to it as I get to it. But I want to preach a message today titled, The Dangers of Babylon. That says Balon, doesn't it? <laughs> Tiffany, I went to Hamilton High. What's that say? <laughs> I don't know. I need an editor, I guess, somebody to help me. Caleb, you write books. Can you spell check me from now on? Dangers of Babylon. I don't know where Balon is, but Babylon is where Daniel was. It's, I found a quote this week. And I thought this was really, really poignant to this message. And it says this. I want you to think about this. The world's smiles are more dangerous than its frowns. The world's smiles are more dangerous than its frowns. Man, that really hit me when I thought about that. Because we, we genuinely, most people, want people to like them. You know, I, I made a post this week on Facebook about how much freedom there is and how much liberty there is when you let go of trying to always gain the approval of everybody and always worrying about what somebody else thinks. And it's, it's real hard when you're young, but it, it, it never stops being hard to some degree. You know, We all want people to like us and we all want people to think we're just great and uh, all these things. But, but I'll tell you what I've learned over the years is that to make the world smile upon you at some point means you're going to compromise. There is no way as a believer that you're going to get the applause of the world and live for God. So you would just better make up your mind right now that you are okay if nobody else likes you as long as He does. That's the main thing. And I know that's not easy, and that's something you'll probably battle every day, to be honest with you. But the more that you can let loose of this life and the more that you can cling to Him, I'm telling you, it's a wonderful feeling. And so there's a Scripture in James chapter 4 that I think kind of goes along with what that quote says. And I'm just going to read the one part of it. It says um, that the love of the world makes you an enemy of God. The love of the world, or to be a friend of the world, is to be an enemy of God. That's pretty decisive, isn't it? There's no in-between. You either love the world or you love God. And so many people today are trying to do this. Aren't they? And Amos, the old prophet Amos, he said, can two walk together except they be agreed? You're going to walk with somebody. You're going to walk with Jesus, or you're going to walk after your old life. But you can't do both. Now, you may jump over sometimes and get in the flesh, but there's a difference between tripping in a hole and walking continually in the hole. Right? And so, I want us to think about that because... We're going to look at Daniel today and we're going to see um, how the temptations and the dangers were there from day one for him and his friends. And how he could have easily 
become just like the Babylonians. I mean, we think about Daniel and his great faith and the way that he served God and his boldness and his willingness to lay down his life. But he could have real easily went the other way. Because I've known plenty of people that started out like Daniel. I don't know where they're at now. And you probably do too, if you're honest. So I want to try to lay a foundation. This will take just a little bit of time this morning. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's real important that you understand how we, got, how we got here, how Daniel got here, so this book makes a little bit more sense. Because I know a lot of folks don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, and you may not be as familiar with it. But I encourage you to get familiar with the Old Testament because it all points to Christ. It all points to the finished work that He did. And it lays a foundation for us as we get into the New Testament. So Daniel is a book, obviously, in the Old Testament. And there are four books in our Old Testament that we call the major prophets. The major prophets. It's not that they were more important. It's just that they had a bigger message to deliver. Okay, and so there's four of these major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. That's the order that you find it in your Bible, unless you have a Hebrew Bible or something, something different than, than the norm. But those four books make up the major prophets. So there's four of them. Daniel is one of them. He's the last. They're in that order, I think, for a reason. And that is because they kind of chronologically take us through history. So Isaiah is the first. And Isaiah is prophesying. He is foretelling He is speaking on behalf of God. That's what that that word means. He's speaking on behalf of God about a hundred years before Israel is going to be taken into captivity. Okay? So, just if you're not aware of this, I'll just briefly say it. Israel was made up of 12 tribes. Most people have heard of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? And so, after... King Saul came King David. After King David came Solomon. When Solomon died, the kingdom was divided into two. Okay? It's split. So just like in Hamilton, everything's split by that river, isn't it? you got the east side and the west side, and then you got Lindenwald. I don't know what they are. They just hang out over there. But we got the east side and the west side, and that river divides it. Well, that's kind of how Israel was. Ten tribes went to the north. And there were two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah. So a lot of times when you read the Old Testament, it will say the word Israel. When it says Israel, unless the context defines something different, it's speaking about the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes. When you read in the Old Testament, it says Judah, unless it's specifically speaking about him or that tribe, it's talking about the southern kingdom. You with me so far? Have I lost you yet? So just think, it's just divided. East side, west side. We'll, we'll, we'll decide who's who. But we're talking about now Judah, the southern kingdom. Okay, The ten tribes in the north are going to be scattered and dispersed and still are to this day. They're going to be so wiped out that there is nothing left of them except a small remnant that's scattered all over the earth. They're going to be wiped out by a place called Assyria. But the southern kingdom is going to be attacked by Babylon. And so these major prophets are prophesying primarily about that coming captivity and destruction. hundred years before it happened, we have Isaiah on the scene talking about it. Then Jeremiah comes along, and he's called the weeping prophet. And it's getting closer. The timetable's ticking. He prophesies during the last five kings of Judah's reign. So he's counting it down towards the very end. Then we come to Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel is a contemporary with Daniel. So when they were taken away into captivity, it kind of went in waves. Like they took some and then they came back and got some more and then they finally come back again and wiped them completely out and took the last bunch. So Ezekiel went with the first group along with Daniel. So when we read Ezekiel, we're getting a picture of it right at the start. Just as it's beginning. This judgment is here. God said it was going to come because Israel and Judah had been idolatrous. They hadn't worshipped Him. They hadn't served Him. They had rebelled. They'd worshipped idols and all kinds of things. And God said, judgment's coming. It's coming. And guess what? They just kept right on doing their thing. Just like another place I know of. I don't think I need to mention where it is because you're in it. Kept right on going. And God said, it's coming. It's coming. And people just kept right on doing their thing. Until God came. And you say, well, I thought you said Babylon come. Well, they did. But I'll show you something here in just a minute. And then we finally see Daniel. And Daniel's writing during the captivity, but he's also looking ahead to the end of it. Because the captivity is not going to last forever. The prophecy was 70 years. That number is going to be important. So just keep that in the back of your mind. 70 has a meaning. And that's a number that we'll look at. But Daniel is writing during that time. He is one of the first ones taken. He and some of these, these Israelites are taken in the first wave. So I want you to see how this happened. I think it's important. It's biblical. It's not just history. It's in your Bible. And so it'll help you when you read your Old Testament. I want you to see this a little bit. In world history, there were and are different superpowers, if you want to use that term, as far as nations, right? So when we're way back in the Old Testament with Moses, Egypt was the superpower. And then we see Assyria, and then we see the Medo-Persian, and then we see the Romans, right? And, so, and the Greeks are in there too. Throughout history, we see these different empires rise up. But shortly before all this takes place, Assyria is the power of the world, okay? You ever read Jonah? Remember where Jonah was sent to go? Where was Jonah going to preach? Somebody help me. Nineveh, there you go. That was the capital city of Assyria, all right? So they were a powerhouse at the time. But by the time we get to Daniel, Assyria is pretty much on the down end of their reign, they are, they are quickly being overtaken and superseded by Babylon. And so, about 20 years before Daniel goes into captivity, this is starting to happen. And there's a guy, you know, we, do you like, did some of you not like your name? Oh, you wish you had a different name? Well, don't feel so bad. There was a guy named Nabopolassar. I mean, try to spell that one, right? Nabopolassar. He rose to power kind of like the first king, if you will, or one of the first kings in Babylon. Okay? And so Nabopolassar decided Assyria, Assyria is getting weaker. I think I will try to attack, to attack. And he goes down to a place near Nineveh and he wipes out that city. And he says, man, that was pretty easy. So he continues to have these military strikes and they continue to move forward and advance and wipe out Assyria. So here's what happens. Assyria is starting to get destroyed and so the rest of the army that remains and the rest of the people, they said, we better, we better tuck tail and run. If we want to live, we better get out of here. So they take off to a place called Carchemish. It's today, it's modern day Syria, right by the Euphrates River. 
And they all kind of gathered there and set up camp and made a town and said, we're just going to hang out here so we can get away from these Babylonians. So here's what happened. They're all gathered in one big place. And Egypt is watching. Egypt's not a superpower anymore, but they're still, they still got some clout, right? And so they have a pharaoh at that time whose name was Nico. And that pharaoh said, I bet if we came over to Carchemish with Assyria and we all came together, we could stop these Babylonians because Egypt's thinking they're going to come for us at some point if we don't do something. So we'll join with these guys and see if we can't stop them. So he gets a group together, he gets his, his military together, and he's on his way to Carchemish to join up with the Assyrians. Now along the way, he has to pass through a little tiny land. Anybody have an idea what that land was? Judah, Israel, right? He's going through Israel. I want to read this to you just so you can see. I'm not just telling you stuff I'm encyclopedia. It's in the Bible. Second Chronicles chapter 35. Verses 20 through 24. Look what it says there. After this, when Josiah, you remember who Josiah was? He's the king of the southern king, kingdom, but he was the boy king. Rose power when he's about seven or eight years old. Can you imagine your seven-year-old brother running the country? If you got one of them? We, we ain't too far off. I probably shouldn't say that. but Lord, Lord forgive me. I shouldn't have said that. Pray for him, and I do mean that. I do mean that. Pray for him. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, there's that Pharaoh I just told you about, Necho, king of Egypt, went to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates. That's why he's going to meet up with the Assyrians. And Josiah went out to meet him. He's a little older now. He's not seven years old anymore. But he sent envoys to him saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? Does Nico saying, why, why are you out here? Why you, we're just driving through here. I'm not coming against you this day, but against the house which I am at war, which was going to be at Babylon. And God has commanded me to hurry. See supposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. Josiah said, I'm not having this. I don't care what you say, where you're going. You're either going to take a detour or we're going to fight. So Josiah goes out, and here's what happens. It says, Josiah did not turn away from him. He disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. Ever hear that before? We'll talk about that later. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot, carried him in, his second chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem, and he died and was buried in the tombs of his father, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. So Nico's coming through. He comes out and says, you ain't going this way. Nico says, I am, one way or another. And Josiah loses his life. So now Israel is kind of an, in, a, in an in-between state, if you will. So Egypt goes to Carchemish. They join up with Assyria. Nebuchadnezzar is getting near the end of his reign, and he's got this up-and-coming guy who is quite a military general. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar down there. And he said, you wipe them out. And he does just that. He goes down to Carchemish. He destroys Egypt. He destroys Assyria. He destroys anything and everything that was there. All right? And so, as a result of that, on the way home, guess what he passes through? He decides, I'm going to go on through Judah, through Israel. And while I'm here, 
I might as well go ahead and take some stuff here. So he loots the temple. He takes those first captives. And for 1,500 miles, he takes it and marches them back to Babylon. And you know who part of those first group was? Daniel, Ezekiel, who will be called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those boys were all in there and a lot of others. And they are on their way back to Babylon. So now, I've set the scene. You know how we got here. This is where we're at. I'm going to read to you, and and you don't have to stand. We'll just kind of go through these verses. But let me read to you verses 1 and 2 first. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. They had put Jehoiakim in power. He was just like a puppet, pretty much. Like, he just did what Babylon said. Don't you go there. (laughs) He just did what Babylon wanted him to do. What are you going to do? You got, you got your cities all destroyed. Your people are captive. You're just there just, just because until they're done with you. And so in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came to the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. I want you to see something. I'm actually going to do the old school Baptist thing, and I'll give you three points in a poem today. How's that sound? We'll just do an outline so you can follow me along. I don't always do it that way, but I just felt I would this week. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Number one, God is sovereign in our suffering. God is sovereign in our suffering. I want you to see what he said in verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar came, took the city, took the people, took the goods, took everything that he could. He'd come back and get the rest later. But look what verse 2 says. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with the stuff. All this was happening. It was an act of judgment, but God was the one moving the pieces. God was the one that was in control. And unfortunately for Daniel and his friends, while they may have been serving God and faithful to God and believing in God, they didn't escape what was coming collectively. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember as Christians in America. If judgment is coming and we don't get raptured out of here or when we do before, we don't know exactly when it happens, how bad it gets before we go, what position you hold and all that other stuff. But regardless, if God tarries and we keep on living and things keep getting worse and God keeps judging this nation, we may have to go along for the ride a little bit. And a lot of times we think, oh my goodness, This is terrible. I don't deserve this. Get me out of here, Lord. But God is in control. And God's purpose is not to make you comfortable. God's primary plan is not to make us happy. God's primary goal is to glorify Himself and to make us vessels that He can use to reach the lost, to bring Him glory, and to help others along the way. That's what God wants to do. And He is sovereign even in our suffering. Let me read to you Isaiah 46, 10, 11. Listen to what God says there. He says, I declare the end from the beginning. I think I read that and and God 
the Spirit, Holy Spirit just kind of got me stuck on that meaning for a minute. I declare the end from the beginning. What's the two things we always say when trouble starts? The first one is, when is this going to end? When is this going to end? And the other thing we say is, I don't even know how I got in this mess. I don't even know where it started. Right? But in between where it started and in between where it ends, God's right there. I declare the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. If you believe in at all in a God that created the world, that saves sinners, that will judge the world in righteousness, that controls all things, then you can rest on that. No matter if it's bad or it's good. God is sovereign. That doesn't mean we're robots and we're pre-programmed and we don't have a say and we can't do anything. It just means that God is the ultimate ruler and authority over everything. And we can trust that He is going to do what's right. And He is going to do what's best. It may not be what's easy and it may not be what's comfortable. But I can promise you it will be what's best. What gets us in a mess is when we try to do it our way. And when we try to figure out a better way. And so a lot of times people read stuff like this and they say, well, I hear all the time people talk about the sovereignty of God and I hear about Calvinism and Arminianism and predestination and foreknowledge and all these big words and I don't know what that means. And people tell me what it means and I get more confused. I don't understand how God can control everything and yet we're free to make choices. How does that all work together? Well, if you figure it out all, completely let me know and I would be glad to talk to you about it. But what I do know is that you've got to get to a point where your faith says, I'm satisfied to not have to know everything as long as I know the basic tenets of it and I know that God's in control. I'll, I'll, get, the, I'll get the end when I get there. I'll get the final answer. The rest of the story, like Paul Harvey used to say, I'll get it when I get there. And you can eventually, I think, be content with that. But I do believe that God is sovereign. And I do believe that He moves things providentially moves people providentially to accomplish his purpose while still allowing them the freedom of choice i've tried my best especially boy i prayed this a lot this week but i'm really trying to get better about it and i've been praying so much that i won't ever again worry about tomorrow that i'll stop worrying about tomorrow because god's already there he's already there and, and tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the year after, I don't need to worry about tomorrow. Jesus said we shouldn't anyway, but we do, don't we? You're lying. You do. We worry about tomorrow. My wife worries about 30 years from now. <laughs> I worry about tomorrow sometimes too. And so I want to read you this little story I found and thought was pretty interesting. Some of you may know this. Some of you might have been almost close to this time uh, period. I don't think we got anybody here this old. But in World War II, there was a bomber that left Guam, and it was headed for a place called Kokura. I believe I'm saying that right. Kokura, Japan. It had a target that it was going to bomb that city. And the story goes that this bomber got over the target, and the clouds were so thick 
that they could not see where they were supposed to let those bombs go. And they circled and they circled and those clouds just would not lift. And finally, the pilot and the engineer and different folks said, we're going to run out of gas. We're going to run out of fuel here if we don't do something. We're either going to have to abort the mission or go to plan B. And they said, we're going to go to plan B. So they had another city marked out that they were going to bomb. And they flew over a little ways to where that place was. And guess what? The sky was clear. Everything was open. Bombs away. They blew that place to smithereens. It looked like some of the roads in Hamilton when they got done with it. And there was holes everywhere. Some of you don't drive. You're like, I don't know what you're talking about. You, got, you guys will see when you drive. But it was a mess. They blew it all to smithereens. And when they got back, the intelligence report came out and told them this. A couple of days before they were set to bomb Kakura, the biggest group of American prisoners had been moved from one place to that city. And that general said, if God had not put that cloud of protection over that city, thousands of American boys would have been killed. God's hand of protection, even in things like that, we may not understand, we may not ever see with our eyes what God has protected us from, what He's done for us. And even through the tough times that we've went, how they will help make us into the person, the child, the man, the woman of God that we need to be. So I thought that was quite a story. Uh, one guy said it this way. I thought this was good. He said, God's ways are behind the scenes, but He moves all the scenes He's behind. God's behind the scenes working, just like we sang in that song. Even when I don't see Him, He's working. His ways are behind the scenes, but He's always moving the scenes He's behind. So how does God be sovereign, and, and how do we have a free will? I mean, the, the best thing, best illustration I heard somebody say one time, imagine if we put a pulley up in the ceiling, you know, the round pulley that go back and forth, and we threw a rope up over it, and there's ends hanging down both sides, and I said, all right, we're going to have to pull ourselves up on that pulley. Don't I have to grab onto both sides and go up? If I just take one side, I'm not going anywhere. They all have to work together. I can't explain completely how it happens, but God is sovereign and He gives us a free will. We can't choose God on our own. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. I understand that until the Holy Spirit draws us and opens our eyes. There's none that seeks God. There's none that does righteousness. I'm not saying you can just wake up one day and get saved and serve God. That's not how it works. God is completely sovereign over salvation. But when He opens your eyes, I believe He calls you, He woos you. You do have an opportunity to respond once the Holy Spirit is operating through the preaching of the Word of God. That's why we give an invitation. I believe that is your time to respond to what God is saying to you. If you're lost, you need to get saved. If you're lukewarm, you need to, you need to ask Him to rekindle that fire. If you're out of His will and you're supposed to be doing something and you're not doing it, you need to surrender and do it. Whatever it is, but that's why we give that invitation. So Daniel and his friends are 1,500 miles from home. And God orchestrated every bit of it. God allowed every bit of it to happen to them. And if you say, man, I, I have a hard time with that. I still don't understand how God could allow us to suffer and how anything good can come from my suffering. You ever thought about that? The greatest act of suffering the world has ever seen was when the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, came and willingly gave His life. He suffered for you and He suffered for me so that we could be forgiven and we could have a relationship with God. He suffered for us. He suffered to be obedient to the Father. 
in Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3, and I'm going to read this from the King James Version because I love how it puts it. It says, They are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now listen to what it says. Who for the what? Say it again. The joy that was set before Him endured the cross. There was joy on the other side of the cross. But the only way to get there was through the cross. You see that? And sometimes there's a whole lot of joy waiting for you on the other side of the suffering that you're in right now. But we settle down in that suffering and we get bent out of shape at God and we get mad at God and mad at everybody, mad at the preacher and we quit going to church and we quit praying and we quit reading our Bible and God's going to let you sit right there until you realize that He's doing this for your good and His glory. He's not sitting up there saying, boy, watch him squirm, I'm enjoying this. He's doing something in your life. He's trying to grow your faith. He's trying to show you that He is faithful to commit and accomplish His purposes for you. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him that endured such contradiction or hostility of sinners against Himself. Why should we do this? Why should we do all this considering and thinking about what Jesus went through? Lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. George, I've never in my life in the last couple of years seen more people weary and discouraged. I have never ever in my life seen more people that seem to have lost their joy, that don't have any hope, that are just going through all sorts of mental and physical struggles. It's an epidemic, not just in our country, but all over the world. And the biggest reason for that is we spend too much time listening to the lies of the enemy and the garbage on the television and the nonsense on social media rather than this. God is in control. I'm not saying that you won't struggle. And I'm not saying that it's something wrong with you if you're struggling, if you're going through those things. I'm saying, like I had to say this week, God, I am tired of just being in a rut. I'm tired of being in a routine. I want to have more joy than I've ever had. I want to have more excitement than I've ever had. I want to have more urgency than I've ever had. Because the time is drawing to a close, and I refuse to spend however much time we have left just walking around moping. Just walking around and saying, boy, this is terrible. I'm just wasting my days away until he comes back for me. I want to live. I want to live for him. I want to live with a purpose. We have a purpose, church. We've just got so caught up in all the stuff around us and all the suffering that we see even going on inside of us internally that we've let the enemy completely cripple us to the joy and the, and the peace that, that God wants to give us. And so, Jesus is on the throne, guys. He's still right there. He's still in control. And I want us to think about this, and then I'm going to move on real quick. I promise I won't be too long. Daniel is in Babylon. And God allowed him to go there. But we'll see next week, it didn't matter to Daniel that he was in Babylon. He already made up his mind he wasn't going to live like a Babylonian. He made up his mind long before he was taken into captivity. 
long before they walked across that desert, he said, when I get to Babylon, whatever they want me to do, whatever they ask me to say, wherever they want me to go, if it goes against my conviction, if it goes against my God, they'll have to kill me. But I'm not going to do it. You can live in this world if you're settled in who you believe and what you believe. It won't matter what the enemy throws at you. It won't matter what garbage goes on around you because you will be settled. Didn't Jesus say something about building on a firm foundation and when the storms of the world come, a beating against it? He didn't say they wouldn't come. He just said that they wouldn't have any damage done ultimately to the structure because you built upon the rock that is Christ. Daniel was in Babylon, but he wasn't going to live like a Babylonian. Also, he was in a bad spot, no doubt, but God was right there with him. No matter where you go and how bad it gets, if you're a believer, God is with you in that storm. He is right there with you. And I think some of us need to be reminded of that. Because we feel like we're isolated and we're alone. And sometimes we do isolate ourselves. Sometimes we get alone. The best thing that the enemy wants you to do is isolate yourself. Man, I mean, I understand that when COVID came out and the precautions and all that stuff, nobody knew anything about it and all that stuff. But can't we see the damage that prolonged isolation does? I can remember going to the nursing home and you couldn't get in there and you had to stand at a window and stare at somebody while they were dying and couldn't even go in there and hold their hand. That was horrific. It was awful. And I think largely what we see the aftermath of the mental health issues and the the depression and all that stuff is because of that prolonged isolation that prolonged time where we were not able to be around other people as we used to be it was damaging to us and so i'm glad that no matter where we are god is with us number two number one god is sovereign in our suffering number two the enemy is selective in his strategy. I promise these will go faster. Look at verses 3 through 5. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach the literature to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. These were country boys from a little town called Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, they're plucked up out of their land. Probably right now, Daniel's about 14 years old. Right about your age. Taken out of his land. Marched across the desert to a place called Babylon. I can, I can only imagine, imagine if you had never been outside of Hamilton. Or something even smaller, seven miles. And all of a sudden, here you're marching through the desert and you see a hill coming up. And you come upon this city and it's like something that you've never seen. 225 miles was this city. 
walls 300 feet high. 80 feet wide. They had walls so big that they would have chariot races, six chariots wide around the top of the walls. I mean, you can't even fathom what that must have looked like. They had 200 altars set up all through the city to worship the different gods of Babylon. They had 150 plus temples in Babylon. One temple alone was eight miles around and 280 feet tall. My point is this. Las Vegas ain't got nothing on Babylon. And these young men from a little town 1,500 miles away are thrown into this with every kind of temptation imaginable. And not only that, but the devil doubles down for them. Because Nebuchadnezzar, they catch his eye. And did you see what it said there? It said in verse 3, bring some of the people, the royal family and the nobility. Nebuchadnezzar picked out the cream of the crop. Why? Because he knew that they would have influence. He knew that they were young and influential and that they could influence their peers. And so he said, give me that group. Give me those right there. And I'm going to wine them and dine them. And I'm going to indoctrinate them. Do you see what it said there? It said that he was going to teach them the literature and the language. For three years they were to be educated. And then they would stand before the king. Think about that today. There's temptations everywhere. There's temptations for you guys as young people, but for us as adults too. There are temptations. You can get into anything you want to get into. Anything you're looking for, you can find it. And some of you spend too much time looking for it. You do. There's a time where you have got to get serious with God, get serious about your sin. We can talk about grace and thank God for eternal security and all that stuff, but you better get right if you're playing around with sin as a believer because you're not exempt from the chastisement of God. And you're not exempt from God doing whatever is necessary to get you back where you need to be to the point of taking your life. And you say, Pastor, I don't know about that. Well, you read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Right around verse 30. They were getting drunk and having a big party at the Lord's Supper. And he said, you're out of here. Taking you home. We ain't going to do this no more. God has that right. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. If he wants to take you out of here, he can do that. You can argue with him when you get there. I just hope you get there. So he says this. I'm going to train these kids. I'm going to teach these kids. I'm going to indoctrinate these kids. And I'm going to use them to reach others. How big of an indoctrination tool today are celebrities and, and famous people? Man, everybody, everybody wants to be like them. Everybody wants to look like them. Everybody wants to have the things that they have. It goes back to this. The enemy knows if he can captivate you and if he can get you caught up in worrying about trying to be like somebody. If you want to be like somebody else, be like Jesus. If you want to be like somebody else... Find somebody that serves the Lord, that loves the Lord, that gives their life 
to love their family and to honor God and be like that person. It might not be glamorous. You might not see them on social media and on the news, but God sees it, and God will honor it. All these temptations, and especially for you guys, you're young, you haven't experienced everything yet. And I remember how it was, and you probably do too. The first time that you do anything, it has this, this extra strong pull to it, doesn't it? The first time you sneak around, steal one of daddy's cigarettes and go smoke behind the garage or whatever. The first time somebody gets you some beer or some alcohol, there's something about it. You, it tastes awful, you're gagging, about ready to die when you're smoking that cigarette. But you don't care, you just go get another one back there. And it's new. And the enemy says, if you just keep doing it, you'll like it. It might not be fun yet, but it will be. Keep trying it. Remember, look at them over there. Look at the television shows you. When they're drunk, you never see beer commercials. Everybody's happy, ain't they? Having a great old time. It don't show people bent over the toilet, puking their guts out after they got done. It don't show the car wrapped around the telephone pole where somebody got killed. It don't show girls pregnant and the guy walked off because he didn't want nothing to really do with you. He just wanted to use you for a night. You don't see that on the beer commercials. Just having a good old time. And that's what the enemy says. Oh, it, it ain't that bad. It'll get better. Just keep on with it. And when it's new, you eat it up because you've never done it before. And you think, man, this is all right. This is pretty good. My friends are doing it, so I need to do it. Any of you watch Beverly Hillbillies? You like the Beverly Hillbillies? I don't watch that one as much, but I remember when they first hit the oil, you know, and they go out there pack up all their stuff and they head out there and they, I think they went to like a hotel or something and they walked in and there was an elevator you might remember this one and people would walk in the elevator and the doors would shut and they stand there a minute and them doors would open and different people would walk out and they were looking like what in the world is going on with them doors every time them doors shut something different happens and I remember a little old lady coming walking along and she got in that elevator and the door shut and a minute later they opened back up and this beautiful lady walked out and, and I think the kids said to, said to the dad, they said, Paul, what in the world is that thing? What just happened? He said, I have no idea, but go get your mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what it's like when we experience stuff for the first time. It looks great, but sin is only pleasurable for a season, guys. And your sin will find you out. He had a plan, and the enemy is selective in his strategy. He has been doing this for a long time. He knows where to go. He knows how to get you. He knows how to set the right bait for you. And you had better be on guard all the time. I'm going to move on to this last one, and I'm done, I promise. Didn't Nebuchadnezzar basically say, all this is yours? My food, my wine, education? You know who else said that? The devil did to Jesus. Look out across this land. All these kingdoms could be yours if you'll just fall down and worship me. It's the same thing he did back then. It's the same thing he did to Jesus. And it's the same lie he's telling you today. Just serve the world. Just go after it. Just have fun. Live your life. You, you can serve God later. You can get busy in church later. Or he'll tell you this. I'll just go out and do it and then ask for forgiveness. God's all about forgiveness. Go out and do it. Live it up. Live it up. And then just come to that altar. Pastor said you can come to the altar and confess your sin. He's faithful and just forgive you and cleanse you all unrighteousness. 
Let me ask you something. Is there a difference between saying I'm sorry and repenting? Yes, there is. You can say I'm sorry. George, if I come to your house every day and, and steal from you and then come here the next day and say I'm sorry, after a while, are we going to have a problem? We're going to have a problem. George ain't going to believe me, and you probably, some pastor will mysteriously vanish one day, and we won't know what happened to him. You can't just keep doing things and just saying, I'm sorry, and expect that God is going to believe that you are genuine about your desire to serve him. That's why it has to be a surrender that takes place. Last one, I'm done, I promise. Satan is subversive in his scheming. That's the last one. Number two was the enemy is selective in his strategy. First one, God is sovereign in his suffering. Last one, Satan is subversive in his scheming. That means that he wants to overthrow order. He wants to destroy the design. Real quick, look at verse 6 and 7, we're done. Among these were Daniel, these men that he had brought in, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Why did Nebuchadnezzar change their names? He offered them all this stuff. He had them in captivity. They really didn't have any choice to do it, or at least obey them or die was their options. So why did he take the time to get somebody to change their names? Do you know that names have meanings in the Bible? They're important. When you're studying the Bible and you come to a name, I, I think it's important that you try to look and see what that person's name means. There's varying opinions on exactly what these names mean, but let me tell you real quick. Daniel means God is judge. Hananiah means God is gracious. Mishael means who is like the Lord. And Azariah means the Lord protects. Let me tell you what these name changes mean. Belteshazzar means Bel, which was one of their gods. Bel protects. Daniel meant God is judge. Now he's Bel protects. Shadrach, who was Hananiah, God is gracious, is now Shadrach illumined by Ra, another one of their gods. Meshach, who is like Aku, instead of who is like the Lord. And finally, Abednego was slave of Nebo. Do you see what the enemy was doing? He was trying to confuse and to change their identity. He was trying to get them to leave behind who they were and become who he wanted them to be. You guys spent a lot of time in church. You guys are growing up in church. And the world and the devil is trying their best, even for us when we go out there. The world is trying its best to remove God from everything. They're trying their best to rewrite history books to say that this isn't a Christian nation and it wasn't founded on any of that kind of stuff. And it's all over everything that our nation was founded on. From the Mayflower Compact, to the, the rotunda in the Capitol, on our money, you name it, God's name is still all over the place. They've tried to erase it. They can't erase it. But they'll keep telling you the lie long enough till eventually a generation is going to come along and they're going to say, I've never heard anything else, so I'm going with this. And guess whose job it is to push back against that? The family and the church. And if either one of them fail... 
we're going to come to a generation that no longer knows God. You wonder why all the time I'm harping about bring your kids to church, do family devotionals, do this and do that. It's not because I like to gripe about it. It's because I'm fearful that we have become so lackluster and so lukewarm about that stuff that we are losing our nation, we are losing our churches, and we are losing our children. And we had better wake up before it's too late. He changed their name to take away their identity. That's the first thing the Nazis did when they got the Jews to the concentration camps. They did everything they could to strip them of any individual identity. Shaved their heads, tattooed a number on their arms, and never called them by their name again. Put them same stupid striped pajamas on them every day. Made them pack into those bunkhouses. Made them live like animals. Made them work like dogs. It was to rob them of any morale, any individuality, and just make them a part of the state until they killed them. And that's what the enemy wants to do to you. He wants to take your identity away. He wants to use you. He wants to fool you into thinking it's fun until he destroys you. You're not slowly wasting away in a concentration camp, but if you're lost, you're slowly wasting away in your sin. You're dead in your trespasses and sin, and sin will come collecting for its wages one day. And if you're not ready, you'll die lost. And that is the truth of the Word of God. He was trying to remove their identity we see it today. People are, try, are so confused. They don't know what gender they are. They don't know what a marriage between a man and a woman should be the only thing. They don't believe that anymore. They think it's okay to kill a baby. The last one I saw last week, and you guys probably know it now, now it's, it's went so far it doesn't matter if you don't know if you're a boy or girl or whatever. Now you can think, people think they're cats called furries. Got to put a litter box in the bathroom so somebody can go dig around in the sand. And I read the comments... And I'm not trying to be funny or harsh. I'm, I'm telling you that put on bunny ears and a tail and go to school. If you let your kid go out of the house like that, shame on you. I'm just going to be honest. If, if you're lost and you don't know any better, I understand it. But if you're saved and you think that's okay, we, got, we just need to have a talk. We just need to have a talk. And I mean it in love. We need to have a talk. Because I read these comments, and, are, and it, it amazed me, Phyllis, reading these comments. How many people were defending this? Well, they're just kids. They're just having fun. This is in high school. I understand if they're three, we all pretended when we was little kids. But by the time you're 15, you know you're not a cat, right? <laughs> I mean, right? We've, we've figured that out. We're, well, are we on the same page? No cats on the front row. All right. You guys understand. I'm just saying. That is, and we laugh, and it's not, I know we're not laughing because we think it's ultimately sad. It's heartbreaking. And we should love those families and love those kids. So if you're watching online, don't post this video and say, look at this hate-filled pastor at K. Russo Baptist Church. We need to shut that church down. Listen, I'm going to keep preaching the truth. But you're welcome here. <laughs> You're welcome here, and you will be loved here, but by golly, you're going to hear what God has to say. You're going to hear that there's one man and one woman. God wasn't confused when He did it. He's not confused now. He's not changing to say, well, it's okay because society thinks it's okay. I don't care what society thinks. I care what God thinks. I care what God thinks. His goal was to confuse and to make them believe that they were something that they weren't. 
They were Daniel. They were Mishael. They were Hananiah and Azariah. He could change their names, but he couldn't change their hearts. I don't care what the world says to you guys. If God is in here and your mind is being transformed by this, Brandon, it'll get tough sometimes. I don't care if Cedarville's a Christian school. That doesn't mean everybody there is a believer. Chris, there'll be temptations at Cedarville. Don't think for a moment that you're going to be safe up there from the devil. He don't wait outside the doors. He's in here too. You've got to constantly be on guard and immerse yourself in the Word of God and have a conviction that will stand. I'm done. Come on, Andy. Come on, Phyllis. I just want you to see something. I'm going to give you a little hook so you'll come back. I promise I won't pe- preach this long next week. I, I won't promise. My plan is not to preach this long. But look at verse 8. And this is what we'll talk about next week. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food and with the wine that he drank. He resolved. We'll talk about that a lot more. But my prayer today is this. If you have lost your joy, if you have lost your way because this world has gotten so messed up that you just feel like it's pointless, it's hopeless, and you're just treading water until Jesus comes back. Church, we have got so much work to do before Jesus comes back. And we can't just hide in the bunker and and build a bomb shelter and hang out down there and, and do all the survival stuff until Jesus comes back. We have got to get out there and point people to Christ. And they got to want what you got. That was the one thing that God impressed on my heart so much this week. It doesn't matter how much truth I preach. It doesn't matter how much I talk about it if my life doesn't reflect what I believe. If I walk around and I look miserable and I'm always wringing my hands and sweating and worried about everything, again, I know that happens. I'm not saying faulting you if it does. But guys, we have got to live out our faith. And you can't just do that. It's exhausting to try to do that. I'll admit for the last couple of years, a lot of times I was just doing that. I know what to do, and I knew how to do it, and I'd show up here and I'd do what was needed. But I want to do it because God has been so good to me. He saved me. He's called me. He's done great things. He's given me a wonderful wife and a wonderful daughter and a future son-in-law. He's given me a home and clothes and food and health, and I could go on and on. But if God's been good to you, He's sovereign in the suffering, but you should still praise Him. Let's pray. They're going to sing, and I hope you'll come. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for what You show us today. I pray, Lord, if somebody's lost, that they would be under conviction today to say, I can't live like this anymore. I'm tired of trying to get it right in my own strength. I'm going to surrender to Jesus today. And Pastor said He changed me and forgive me, and I'm going to take His Word for that. I'm going to take the Word of God for it. If you're a Christian and you're miserable and joyless and hopeless, I pray that you'll get on your face today and ask God to fix you. Don't worry about everybody else. Ask Him to fix you. And if you get something, people want what you got. I pray today, Lord, that you would just move in this place and call people into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and as we sing, you don't wait, you come. God is calling.